Um, we always, as part of our service, like to pray right before the message that God would open our eyes and help us understand his word, that we'd be able to see Christ clearly. Uh, and, and Chris has just done that. As, as, as saying in first service, yesterday, read an article in the paper uh, that was just one of the most amazing things I've ever read in the paper. And I'd like to pray for the church in Nigeria and for our local area churches. And it has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm about to preach from the book of Luke. But I think it's good to sometimes just take a moment and pause as we see what's going on in our world and to just pray and to ask God to continue to work. So let me tell you about what I read. Um, you probably, for the past few years, have heard a little bit about the terrorist organization uh, Boko Haram. Uh, they operate especially in the area of Nigeria, and they have unfortunately grown in size and sophistication as a terrorist organization. And one of the things that they do is they recruit and send out suicide bombers, especially in Nigeria, but really anywhere they can go. And the article that I was reading was especially about the enormously brave bomb squads that go in and disarm bombs that are strapped to children. Uh, They were describing a young woman who she had to walk for over two days to get to someone who would help her. And when she saw the bomb squad, she said, I have a bomb strapped to me. Please save me. And the one young man that they were interviewing, he's my age, 35 years old. He has disarmed five bombs alone in the past month. And he's been doing this for close to 10 years. He goes after a bomb with a pair of scissors and some training that he has received about how to disarm any kind of bomb because they keep changing. And every time he does it, he knows that it could go wrong and he could die. And so I just want to take a moment. And I neglected one of the most important things. Many of the people who are doing this work are Christians, and their bomb squads are having prayer meetings so that God would save their lives on a daily basis. And, and, and often he does, and yet this young man was talking about how he has friends who have died in this kind of work. And so he always knows that it could go either way. And with amazing courage, he does what I believe is the work of God in saving people's lives in such a dramatic and awesome way. And as I read it, like tears are just coming to my eyes because I'm thinking, this guy is my age, and he's taking his life in his hands on a weekly basis. And I just want to praise God that God commissions people to do that kind of work and ask that God would bless the church in Nigeria because he was so clear about where his faith was and his faith is so evident in the kind, you know, he's, he's not saying, you know, like, are you a believer? I'll save your life. Okay. He's saving anybody that will come up. And so I want to pray for him and for the church there and for our neighboring churches as well. And just ask that God would, let's pray. Our father in heaven, Lord, I thank you that you are a savior, that you, through your love, saved us through your son Jesus, and through your spirit, you call people to many different kinds of work, that you have called people who are so brave and so courageous that they are literally saving lives on an almost daily basis. And I just ask that you would protect and continue to equip and strengthen and give courage to these people who serve in this way. 
I, I pray for the church in Nigeria that they would not be afraid, but that you would strengthen them again and again, and that they would point people why they can have such courage in the face of death, because they know where their hope is. So I pray that you would continue to strengthen their witness. I pray that many people would come to Christ as they see your power in action in the lives of such fearless people. Lord, I do pray for this father who's made a mistake that is going to haunt him for the rest of his life. I ask that you would help him to have hope in this moment. Lord, I I pray for your spirit, not only to be at work in Nigeria, but to be at work here in Holly, in in our area churches, everywhere where the word is opened right now on a Sunday morning, whether it's the river or whether it's Great Lakes or or the Methodist Church in our front yard here. Father, I ask that your gospel would be proclaimed in power and that people would be saved through faith in Christ. That we would have confidence our sins are forgiven and joy in receiving your love and hope in the future. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in in Luke chapter 14. I would encourage you to open your Bible. If you didn't bring one with you, you use one on your phone or grab one of the ones that are in the seats here and, and find Luke chapter 14. And I want to ask you as you turn there, to imagine for a moment that you have invited Jesus to come have dinner at your house in a very literal way. Jesus, a man, is coming to your house to eat. And when I was preparing this message, I I wrote this sentence. Can you imagine what dinner with Jesus would be like? And I thought, I'm going to ask everyone at the church this question. And as soon as I hit the question mark on my keyboard, I thought, I don't know if I've ever imagined that. So I had to stop my preparation and think for a couple of minutes about what this would be like. I think sometimes we talk about Jesus and and we forget that he is an actual real person. So in one sense, if Jesus were walking the earth today, inviting him to your house would be no different than inviting, say, James over to your house or or Scott or, or anyone. He's an actual person who would come and sit down and share a meal with you. So think for a second about what this would be like. How would you get ready? What would you do? What would you look forward to as part of that time that you knew that you would be able to share with the Savior? And who would you invite to share that meal with you? What people would you want to be there to meet Jesus? So as I paused and as I thought about this, I I realized a couple of things. Personally, I don't think I would actually worry very much about food. I expect, and I'm sure you can relate to this, if you have good, dear friends who are super close to, or maybe a family member that you haven't seen in a while, and the first time you get together, you just can't wait to talk about so many things that you might have a great dinner sitting on the table and it just gets cold. Because even the best of food doesn't seem that great when you're with someone that you just want to talk to. Because the person is that good. And I think having Jesus over to my house would be like that. I've got some pressing questions about my life, about our church, about my family, that I would love to ask him in a very pointed and direct way. And in one sense, I don't even think the food would matter. But, having said that, I then thought... I would want to make enchiladas. 
Because Mexican food did not exist in Jesus' day as it exists now. And I have no idea what Jesus is currently eating or, or how often Jesus eats. I mean, he's, he's in a resurrected body. We, we only have a, a hint at what that's like. So it's possible that he's never had enchiladas. And I would want to share that with him. But I fully expect that even as we shared a good meal... And as I ask questions to him that I would love to have him answer in a very direct way, I believe he would be the very same Jesus that we see in the pages of Scripture. So I would come to him with the question that matters most in my life, and I expect that he would probably not answer it directly. Just like he does for all of the people in Scripture who come to him with questions. He doesn't necessarily give you an answer that you would like. He gives you truth that you need. So that he draws you in. So that you live a life of faith. So that you learn to depend on his heavenly father. And on him and the work that he's done for you. So, so I expect that he would draw me in like that. And I want that. I want to be drawn closer to a life of faith. So whatever he said to me, my my hope and my prayer is that I would not just be one of those people who was like amazed from a distance where they see Jesus and they're like, oh, this is so incredible. And then they forget about it and don't do anything about it. My prayer is that as I would listen to him, that I would be changed, that I'd be drawn in, that my admiration for him would grow more and more because I'd spent time with him. And and what I want to say now is that in a real sense, we can do that as we look at the pages of Scripture. I don't know if you remember, when Jesus told the disciples, he says, you know, I'm about to ascend to heaven. I'm going to go be with my Father. And it's for your advantage that I go away. Because if I go, I will send another comforter to be with you. And so the advantage that we have because Jesus is not here physically is we have his spirit. And the Holy Spirit is able to take the words of scripture and make them alive in our hearts. So we do spend time with Christ. You can't see him, you can't touch him, but his spirit is with you and will help you understand who he is and what he said. And and just like when Jesus was on earth, it doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's going to answer every question you have in the most direct way. But he will lead you to a greater place of faith and to a greater love for God. And it's my prayer that that's what the Holy Spirit is going to do right now in the next 30 minutes as we look at the life of Christ here at one of the most awkward dinner parties that has ever happened in the history of the world. The reality is, Jesus is a polarizing figure. And so as I imagined what it would be like to have him in my home, I know that he would challenge me. He would not just like pat me on the head and be like, attaboy, good job, yeah, everything's great. I know that he would expose sins in my life and he would make me somewhat uncomfortable. But I also know that he would give me such incredible hope that I am eager for him to do that in my life, that I want him to do that for me. But not everyone does. And in the wisdom of God, when Jesus did walk the earth, and you could literally invite him into your home, many people opposed him. And in fact, the dinner party that we're about to read about in the book of Luke was really nothing more than an attempt 
to discredit Jesus. See, Jesus was enormously popular, and the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes, those were the people who knew the Old Testament. Those were the people who served in synagogues, which were very much like our modern churches. People would gather and listen to the scriptures and talk about the scriptures. Those were the people who taught Those are the people who worked at the temple. Those are the people who offered the sacrifices. And those people, when they met Jesus, they did not love him. And in fact, they were jealous because of the influence that he had. And so their desire was not to learn from Christ. Their desire was to discredit Christ, to get rid of him. And so as we look at the scriptures here... My prayer is that we would be warned by the things that Jesus says to them so that we would welcome the presence of Christ in our hearts and in our lives. That we would find the joy of knowing him and that we would not miss him. And my prayer is that we would love Jesus more within the next 30 minutes in three specific ways. I want to be clear about what I mean by that. You know, love Jesus. What do I mean by love Jesus? Number one, that we would be humbled by his greatness. That we would be humbled by his greatness. Now, what do I mean by that? Specifically, when we are next to someone who is an incredible person, you can have one of two reactions. You can enjoy being around that person, You can enjoy having a relationship with them and being near them is something that you love and you admire them and maybe even want to imitate them. You know, we do this with different people. You know, as as you look at somebody who's got a great sense of style, maybe you try to imitate that and you start to wear similar clothes because you like the way that person is able to dress themselves. Or or, or as a guitar player, I do this with great guitar players. I mentioned last week, I saw my favorite guitar player a little over a week ago. And, And for me, that has always been enormously inspirational. I love watching him play. And then I go home and I try to do all the things that he did. And even though I can't do them, I love watching him play. So when you're around someone great, you can have that reaction. You can also have the opposite reaction. You know, I know people that see a great guitar player perform, and they go home and they throw their guitar in the trash. I hate that guy. It's just, I can't do it. And we do that with great people. They're always polarizing. You either love them and want to be closer, or you want to get rid of them because you're threatened by them. My prayer is that as we see Jesus, you would love him, recognize that he's infinitely greater than you are, but that's a good thing because he's going to draw you in. He loves you. And my prayer is you'll recognize his greatness and be humbled by it. And find great freedom in that humility to enjoy being in the presence of Christ. So that's the first way. Love Jesus more by recognizing that he's greater than you and by loving him. Being humbled by him. The second way is that you would love Jesus by longing for God's rich rewards in the next life. Longing for God's rich rewards in the next life. Now what am I talking about there? 
Well, many times, Christians live a life of faith. We're called to be generous with people who can't pay us back. Jesus is going to talk a little bit about that. And we do that because we trust that God rewards our obedience. And oftentimes, those rewards are not in this life. They are in the next life. It's easy to be impatient for a lot of reasons, My prayer is that you would love Jesus by recognizing that he will reward you for your faithfulness and that you won't grow impatient or you won't grow discouraged, but that you will have enormous patience to trust that his rewards will come. Even if they don't come in this life, they will come in the next life. And the third way I want to encourage you to love Jesus, most importantly, is that you would love Jesus by accepting God's grace. That you would love Jesus by accepting God's grace. And here's what I mean by that. Grace is favor from God given to you freely. Jesus calls you to a life of obedience, but you don't obey so that God likes you back. You first recognize his love is given to you as a gift that there's nothing you could do to earn his love, that he loves you before you love him. And you love Jesus by receiving that grace, by receiving the forgiveness of your sins. You recognize that Jesus' blood covers your sins, and you say, yes, I claim that. I want that for me. And I know that I can't earn it, but God is a generous and a merciful and a kind God. And so you, you love Jesus by recognizing how generous and kind he is in giving you grace. In order to help us with those three things, let's look at this awkward dinner with Jesus. And first, we're going to see this dinner trap. Look with me at verses 1 through 6 of chapter 14. It says, One Sabbath, when he, Jesus, went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, They were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. And then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out. And they could not reply to these things. I've called this section a a dinner trap. This gives us the context for everything else that is said in the next few verses. And it demonstrates that the people that Jesus was with were not the kind of people that genuinely wanted to learn from him. They were the kind of people that wanted to discredit Jesus. And they do that by setting up this context where they welcome one person who has a disability. The text says that that there was a man who had dropsy. Now, dropsy, if you've ever seen someone their body is retaining an enormous amount of fluid. Uh, sometimes this happens, people have ankles that swell, and you'll see, and it's very painful. 
And sometimes as someone is close to death, their body retains an enormous amount of water and their whole body will swell. Their arms will swell, their legs will swell, and it usually happens right before someone dies. The ancients would call that condition dropsy. There were probably different types of medical disorders that called it, but they just saw that kind of swelling and they labeled it all as dropsy. And there's this man who is obviously in incredible pain, suffering an enormous amount, and they're watching, not to see this man be set free or delivered or healed, but they're watching to see if Jesus is going to heal someone on the Sabbath, because in their mind, that would violate the fourth commandment, that that you're supposed to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And to them, they believed that Jesus would be breaking the Sabbath by working and healing this man and setting him free. So they've set this trap. Because if Jesus works, they want to tell everyone around them that he can't possibly speak for God because he doesn't keep the law. And they think that that's going to work, that they're going to finally discredit this man publicly. And you would think that they would have learned by now because they'd actually tried the same trick a couple of times before. It's not the first time that Jesus has shown them what the Sabbath is really all about. And it's a little bit, I think, like setting a mouse trap to try to catch a lion. Just in a few seconds, Jesus completely turns the tables on them, and instead of them successfully trapping the Savior, the Savior has exposed their sin and exposed their hearts and demonstrated that rather than discrediting him and getting rid of him, they desperately need him. And so do you and so do I. So let's look at how Jesus exposes their sin and see if in his mercy he would do the same for us. So let's look, number one, at the danger of self-promotion. The danger of self-promotion. Look with me at verses 7 through 11. It says, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Now notice who Jesus is talking to. It says, he told a parable to those who were invited, meaning everyone who is at this dinner with him. And he begins to say to everyone, you guys are full of pride. You're only here to advance yourselves. You're trying to figure out where you're at in the social order, and you want to make sure that you get the respect that you deserve. But that's the exact opposite of what you should be doing. In fact, it it looks like they only invited this man with dropsy to trap Jesus. And everyone else on the guest list is a sort of who's who in an attempt to just build social status. So you think through who's popular. 
You think through who has money. You, you think through who, who would help me improve myself in the ways that I need. You, you know, who would help me just enjoy life a little bit more. And that's why they were at this dinner. And so Jesus, rather than being the kind of guy that says, all right, give me the head chair, I'm the son of God. Jesus starts demonstrating that everyone there is totally wrong in how they're treating not just this dinner, but all of life. See, the religious leaders of the day, they thought that if they could obey God's commands, that they would have God's favor. And that if you didn't obey God's commands, that you didn't have God's favor. And so there was a very clear sense in which you could say, I'm a better person than you because I've kept these commands. What Jesus is saying, don't assume that. And it was not only true of the people that were at that dinner, it's true of everyone. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, these people thought that they were right before God because they kept all the commandments in their own minds. But in reality, Jesus is clearly opposed to to them. And what they needed to do was recognize that they needed his grace. The reality is, They invited that one guy who clearly needed help because he was in such desperate physical position, and they thought that everyone else at the dinner was fine. But the truth is, everyone there needed the grace of Jesus, needed the help of Jesus. And the only person who received it was the one guy that they had no hope for. So there's great danger in putting yourself first. Peter goes on, he says, not only does God oppose the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. See, there's great freedom in humility. Jesus doesn't call us to be the kind of people that are just like Eeyore. You know, you're always just so down on yourself and and just sad. That's not what biblical humility is like. Biblical humility looks to God for grace and recognizes the greatness of our Savior. And in that, we find enormous freedom. And just like Jesus, he's our example here. Jesus humbles himself and endures death on a cross, the death that you and I deserved. I mean, he could look down on you and me and say, look, they broke all your laws. They deserve this punishment. He could have done that. But instead, he humbled himself, and he took your place, and he took my place, and died for you. And what does the scripture say? It says, therefore, God has exalted Jesus. And he's given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus is exalted because he humbled himself. And the crazy thing is, when you and I humble ourselves, the Bible says that God will also exalt us in the proper time, in the proper way. And so as a result, Peter ends these verses, he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. 
When your father calls you to humility, you can give him your fears. You can give him all the reasons that you want to promote yourself, all the things that that make you insecure and afraid. Just give them to God. Talk to him about them in prayer. Cast all your anxieties on him and find the freedom of humility instead of trying to promote yourself. Live a life of faith where you trust that God will take care of you. So Jesus exposes and he condemns the danger of self-promotion because if you do live a life of self-promotion, God will be opposed to you and you will be humbled. That's what happens to everyone here at this wedding feast. But if you live a life of faith and you humble yourself, you will be exalted and that's what Jesus wants for you. He wants you to live a life of faith and he wants you to experience the joy and the freedom that comes from that kind of humility. But he exposes a second, second danger in the hearts of the people who were there. And that's the desire for immediate payment. Or the desire for immediate reward. So look again at, at Luke chapter 14. Read with me verses 12 through 14. It says, he said to a man who had invited him. When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." You notice Jesus exposes a desire for immediate payment in his host. Now, this is, this is the exact opposite of what you're supposed to do at a polite dinner party, right? Like, first he's insulted all of the guests. Now he turns to the man who invited him and says, You invited all the wrong people. You invited one man with a disability in a room full of your friends. You should have invited a room full of people with disabilities so that God would repay your generosity in the future. And and aren't we the same way as we think about hospitality and as we think about the ways that we work? You, You know, Jesus exposed the hypocrisy of the people who were there because he said, you know, you'll take care of a son of yours on the Sabbath. You'll take care of an animal of yours on the Sabbath, but you don't care about the people that you see day to day. And then he turns to the host and he says, you invite your friends and your brothers and your relatives, but you don't invite the people that could really benefit from your hospitality. And why? Because you want to be rewarded right now. You expect as you invite the right people, you will improve your social status. You'll get invitations. You'll meet the right people. You'll go in the right circles. And you believe that by your own strength, that you're going to climb the social ladder and enjoy this life. And Jesus said, that is so foolish. Because this life, at best, will last 80, 90 years. Some exceptional people make it to 100 and maybe just a few years beyond. But compared to eternity, this life is nothing. We should pour ourselves out so that when we die, we're broke here, but enormously rich in the next life. 
The goal of this life is not to make your kids rich when you're gone. The goal of this life is to have a rich reward in the next life. And and I'm talking a lot about grace, right? God gives us his favor not by what we do, but he gives it as a gift. But the reality is, if you've received that grace, it changes you so that you live by faith and you become this kind of person that you love sharing the grace of God with other people. And you share it generously, not just with people who look like they have it together. You share it with people who look like they are a mess. And you come and you say, God forgave my sins. I was a mess. I was the person who needed healing. I was the person who needed forgiveness. And God forgave me, and he will do the same for you. And you share that good news, not just with your friends, not just with your kids, but with anybody and with everybody. And you don't care if people make fun of you for being a Christian. You don't care if people look down on you for having a faith in Jesus Christ. Because what happens today does not matter at all in light of eternity. But so often we're so focused on right now that we completely lose sight of what happens in the next life, what matters for all of eternity. And Jesus exposes the danger of self-promotion. He exposes the desire for immediate payment. And then he, he exposes, I think, one of the hardest things, the disaster of choosing good things over the greatest thing. Look with me at verses 15 through 24. And, and actually, to start out with, I'm just going to read verse 15, and we're going to break this into two sections. But, we, but he shows the disaster of choosing good things over the greatest thing. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, now stop right there. He's saying something that, that I think he's trying to rescue a disastrous dinner party. Okay, so Jesus has just insulted the host after he insulted everyone who was there. This is like the kind of Thanksgiving where people start arguing over politics. And you go to the bathroom, not because you have to go to the bathroom, but because you want to escape for five minutes. This guy, recognizing how offended everyone is, pipes up with, you know what, we're all going to be blessed in eternity. We're all going to be blessed when we eat at this table. And it's kind of like what we would say today. You know, all roads lead to Rome. It's all going to be fine. Why don't we just focus on what we agree on and and we'll just move on. You know, everybody's going to be there. And Jesus shoots him down. He doesn't say, amen, I'll drink to that. He says, by the way, guys, it's not looking good for any of you. Look at what he says. Verse 16, but he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. And the first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. 
And another said, I've married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. And so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, None of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now notice what's just happened. Man says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus ends this section by saying, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. In other words, you and all your friends and the people that you know that you think you're all fine, it's not looking good. Someone asked me, how do you know that Jesus is talking about heaven, that he's talking about the next life? Well, there are two good reasons why we ought to apply these words exactly to heaven. And one of them is from verse 15. That guy that piped up, he said, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God was not there. Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God was at hand. But it hadn't begun yet. And all of the Old Testament looks forward to this time when God's king will reign on the throne of David and there will be bountiful food and God's blessing and people will sing joyful songs and it'll be a feast that never ends. It will be full of rich, good food. That's the feast they're looking forward to. That's the feast that comes when God rules and reigns on the throne And that's the feast that really the whole Bible looks forward to. And so when Jesus starts talking about this banquet and a master who has sent out an invitation to many, that language is responding to a question about the kingdom of God, or I should say to to this statement of blessing about the kingdom of God. And Jesus is talking about the exact same thing. He's saying, you have an idea of the kingdom that you and your friends are all going to be there and having a great deal, a, a great time. But the reality is, they should not have been so self assured. And I believe, in some sense, we should not either. Now, in one sense, I do want to give you the incredible hope that if you're trusting in the promises of God, that your sins can be forgiven through Jesus, that you can have great assurance. But the danger is that like the people Jesus is talking to, you would think, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I do all right. And you would think that you're fine, but in reality, you're not. And that's what I don't want to have happen in my life or in your life. And so I'd like to ask you to to examine yourself based on the things that Jesus has said here. This man thought that he and his friends were fine. And Jesus said, so many people miss the kingdom of heaven. And notice the reasons that he gave. These are all really good things. In fact, they're blessings of God. He, he mentions a field that he probably would have used to farm. This, this is income. He mentions oxen. That, that these, are, you know, these are the tractors of the ancient world. They're using these things to experience God's blessing, to provide for their families. Another man mentions being married. I mean, marriage is one of God's greatest gifts. And so none of these things are bad. These are not evil people. 
They're people that take God's good gifts and they enjoy the gift and forget the giver. They want the blessings of God without God. And Jesus says, because of that, they're missing the invitation that God has opened to everyone. That because they want the things everyone else wants, they're not paying attention to this feast that God is offering them. I said there are two reasons why I believe that Jesus is talking about heaven. The, the other is, if you remember my message from last week, Jesus has already talked about heaven in exactly this way. He talks about feasting with Abraham in chapter 13. Abraham had been dead for 2,000 years. If you're going to eat with a guy, it's going to have to be in the next life. And so Jesus has talked in the exact same language about this great feast that it's at the end of time. And this is what he's talking about. And he's saying, you can miss that feast if you just assume that you have God's favor. Your pride will keep you from this feast. Your love of things will keep you from this feast. And Jesus says, if that's you, you will not be at this banquet. And it might seem surprising to see God described as angry. We don't like to think of God as angry. But the Bible is clear that God has a righteous anger. That these people who loved their things more than being with the God who made them, that God is righteously angry with them. That the Bible says that those who reject Jesus will be objects of God's just wrath. And think for a moment about why. If you've ever had a friend, you know, maybe a friend that that you had in school, and and as time goes on, you begin to notice that you're the only one who makes phone calls. You know, you you pick up the phone first, you know, every month or so, and then maybe a couple times a year, and then before you know it, five years go by, and and you just realize this is a one-sided friendship. This person seemingly doesn't care about you or or, or want a relationship with you. You're the only one maintaining that relationship. And at some point, you just quit picking up the phone. That's kind of insulting on a human level. Think about how much more insulting it is on a divine human level. God has sent his son into the world to die for your sins... And when he issues you an invitation to to confess your sins and to experience forgiveness and to know him and to have a relationship with him, and you say, eh, that's enormously insulting. Who would not be angry when God has given us so much? And to, to spurn the blood of Jesus is the greatest sin in the world. And so while God has given an invitation and people say, I can't make it, I'm too busy, I don't care. Of course God is angry. And so Jesus is saying his heart is to welcome all kinds of people in. Not just the people that are there at this dinner. Although Jesus is telling them this story, I believe because he wants them to repent. But God is the kind of generous God. You remember he he tells his host, you should have invited a house full of lame and crippled people who can't pay you back because then God would pay you back. Well, you know, what does God do? He goes and God invites the crippled and the blind and the lame. He invites the weak. He invites those of us who have no hope. And he extends us this kind of invitation and forgives our sins and welcomes us into his family, into his house, into this feast. 
That's the heart of God. And that's why you can love God with your whole heart because he's a God who loves you and gives you this kind of grace. God's desire is that his house would be filled. Don't be too busy to respond to his invitation. And as I close, I want to give you just a couple of points of application here. As we've looked at some of the sins that Jesus calls out, my first point of application, number one, accept God's invitation. He wants you to have a relationship with him for all of eternity. He has made that possible through the death of his son and the resurrection. So what you need to do is accept God's invitation. Call out to him in prayer and say, God, I am guilty. I I am a sinner. But I believe that Jesus paid the price for my sin and, and accept God's invitation by obediently being baptized, saying, I died with Christ and I have been raised with Christ and then live a life of obedience in the context of a church. Accept God's invitation. Use this life to be ready for the next life. That's number one. If you're not sure that your sins are forgiven, I want to urge you today to seek the Lord with your whole heart, to confess your sins and find peace and forgiveness and know that you can be part of that feast one day. Number two, Scott, we were talking about this Wednesday, and you said, I think it's God's will that we be that servant And you are right. That is absolutely true. We are the people that we go out and we spread the good news that God is giving an open invitation to know him. That we can have our sins forgiven. And so you and I have the responsibility to go spread the good news of Jesus. Be the servant that goes to the highways and byways. And don't just share the good news of the gospel with good-looking people who have it together. But look for the people who are train wrecks. Tell them that there's hope in Jesus Christ, that God loves you and will welcome you into his family. So so number one, accept God's invitation for yourself. Number two, spread the good news of God's invitation. Number three, pray for humility. Pray for humility. Sometimes we joke about this, right? You you don't want to pray for humility because God will humble you. And it, it, it might be painful, But here's the thing, and and that is a funny joke, and and it's true. Sometimes when God humbles you, it's very painful. But the gift of humility is such a blessing. Jesus says you will be exalted. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And part of what that means is you just acknowledge your need. The people that you and I, you know, if you look at the story and you're like, how do I fit in this story? You and I, we're the guy with dropsy. We're the guy that we're falling apart. We have no hope. And Jesus comes along and he forgives us and he changes us and he makes us what we should have been all along in in God's image perfectly. More and more we become like Jesus Christ as we encounter him. So literally pray for humility. I don't care if you're a Christian, if you've been a Christian for a long time, we all need this. Because there are, pride just crops up. It's like a weed. You might think that you're fine, and as soon as you think you're fine, you're not. So pray for humility. Pray that we would have the kind of humility that recognizes the greatness of Jesus. Number four, pray for faith in future rewards. It is so easy to feel like we're not going to make it. 
and to feel like we're going to be poor as we are generous with other people. Jesus says, your heavenly Father notices everything that you do, and he will reward you. If not in this life, he will reward you at the resurrection of the just after the next life. Pray that your faith in what Jesus said would grow, so that you can be generous, so that you can be the kind of person that you love people, no matter if they look like they have it together or not. Pray for faith in future reward. Finally, Pray that God would help us seek the kingdom first. Pray that we would not be the kind of people that that, that we're obsessed with our wives and our kids, that we're not obsessed with building a little empire with property. I mean, like, the stuff he mentions, it's good stuff. But pray that we would enjoy God's blessings in their proper place, that we would seek God first, and that if there's something out of balance in our lives, that God and his mercy would expose that in us so that we don't miss the kingdom. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to praise you for your generosity. And Lord, I believe that as we've looked at the scriptures, this light shines in our hearts and helps us know where our sins are. And I ask that you would just forgive us. I pray that in this moment, as we cry out to you, you would cleanse us and set us free from the things that keep us in bondage. I ask that you would give us such a love for Christ that we would live every day for the next life, looking forward to our reward. And Lord, we praise you for what you've done for us in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness that we have, and I ask that you would bless us with faith that is so full of hope and confidence and peace because of what Christ has done, that we would be full of joy. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.